We welcome you to our Bible study as the radio Bible class streams across the nation and around the world. We bring to you a message how Christ ministers to his disciples after the resurrection. We greet you on the internet and radio and Twitter with a message that Jesus is alive today. Now today's lesson is titled Israel's Judgment and it comes from Hosea 9. If you'd like to hear a previous lesson, you can listen online at our Facebook page. That's www.facebook.com slash radio Bible class with no spaces between radio Bible class. Again, that's www.facebook.com slash radio Bible class with no spaces. Now, Christian radio is not free. If you enjoy this radio ministry, your offering to this ministry will aid in the expense of keeping the radio Bible class on the air as a witness for Jesus. By making a charitable contribution, you are helping reach people that are in our listening area or on the internet. You can make a donation safely and securely by calling us at 601-483-8648. And there they can take your information safely and securely over the phone. Or send your gift to Word Talk, Inc., P.O. Box 4334, Meridian, Mississippi, 39304. Your gift to Word Talk, Inc. is IRS approved as a 501c3 taxes and ministry. Hebrews 13, 16 says, Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now, if you're a regular listener, you know that we've been journeying through the book of Hosea and we are over halfway through. And in our study, we've seen God's tough love for his people. He's warned his people. He's been long-suffering. He's been patient. In all of this, Israel believes that it's no big deal, so they've just ignored God's warning. Now, one thing we should always remember is that God will warn us when we get off his plan for us, off the path that he has for us. He will relentlessly pursue us even though we are chasing after other things. In our last lesson from Hosea, we looked at the principle of sowing and reaping. How Israel was sowing to the wind and was going to reap a whirlwind of judgment. And today we'll see a harvest that Israel has brought in. Back in Hosea's day, there were two harvests, one in the spring and one in the fall. And on each of these harvest seasons, there were big festivals. And if you studied or heard of the festival of Israel, then you know they were given around this harvest time. Now, Hosea is speaking to Israel in chapter 9 and 10 during one of these harvests. We don't exactly know which harvest this was, but Hosea is using this harvest to get God's message across to them. As he talks about the harvest, he uses this as a spiritual metaphor for his message. And Hosea is trying to get Israel to see how they have forsaken God and how God wants to break up their heart like you break up soil. Have you ever tried to break up hard soil? It takes a lot of work, but this is the analogy that Hosea uses here. The hearts of the Israelites have become hard and God wants to break up that hard ground. God wants to break up the soil of their hearts so that he can get rid of those weeds and overgrowth and he can plant seeds of righteousness back in their hearts. I would imagine that each of you listening know someone or you've met someone who always sees things from a negative point of view. Every time you're around them, something has gone wrong and it's not their fault. It seems that as Soon as they get over one problem, they have a new one to complain about. I personally knew a few people that I've made the statement about, well, I know they're good because they're not complaining. Hosea says the harvest has been gathered in and it appears that they are like the rich fool that Jesus told us about in parable Luke 12. You remember this person and how he planned to sit back and enjoy the riches that he gained? Just like Jesus' parable, the ending for Israel is different from what they thought. 
They believed their prosperity was going to continue, but Hosea tells them that the party is over. Now let's look at the first three verses. Hosea 9, verses 1 through 3, and I'm reading from the ESV. Rejoice not, O Israel, exalt not like the people, for you have played the whore, forsaken your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floors and wine vats shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. So the harvest has been gathered in, and there's plenty. Just like before, the only thing they see is prosperity. And because of this, they hadn't listened to Hosea about their prosperity coming to an end. Israel plans to enjoy the fruits of this harvest just like they did every year. Now, during the harvest time, the farmers would go and they would throw these big festivals or these parties during this harvest time. But all of a sudden, Hosea arrives. God speaks through Hosea to address two issues. First, the harvest, and second, their ability to reproduce, which we'll see later in this chapter. But God addresses these two things intentionally because they are worshiping a false god of the harvest and a false god of fertility. So it appears from this chapter that everyone has helped bring in this harvest. And now they're planning to relax and enjoy a life of having a big party. The reference in verse 1 to prostitutes refers to the immoral acts that took place during these celebrations that they had, these big parties. Let me give you some background on this. What they would do is they would find a high point or a mound near the fields to bring in the harvest. And on this mound, they would make a threshing floor where they would put the wheat and the, or their grapes. If it was wheat, then they would use this threshing floor to separate the wheat from the chaff. They would beat the wheat stalks until all they had were husk and wheat kernels. Then they would beat them a little more until the husk would come apart. Now, the reason why they did this on a mound or a hill was because there was wind up there. And everyone would get around the blanket or the cloth and they would toss it up in the air. And this is how they separated the wheat from the chaff because the wheat kernels were heavier so they would fall back down. But the chaff would blow away in the wind. Now because these men were out harvesting for weeks at a time, there were parties just about every night. And many of these men engaged with prostitutes to participate in their fertility rites with the pagan god of Baal. And that's how they celebrated the harvest with these parties. But if you look at the second half of verse 1, Hosea tells them not to rejoice or celebrate. And he gives them the reason for that. He says, because you have been unfaithful to God. The people of God were never to give themselves to immoral celebration or pagan worship. If you remember all the way back to the promised land, God told the Israelites to drive the Canaanites out of that land and not to mingle with them. Now, over time, the Israelites have embraced these pagan practices and the gods of the Canaanites. And because of their action, God has sent prophet after prophet to warn them and tell them to turn, repent. And Hosea is here warning them that, that if they don't turn back to God, that the party's over. That God is going to punish them by scattering them, by removing his protection from them and let them suffer the consequences of their actions. Now they were so far from God. They have gone down so far the wrong path that they weren't given praise and glory to God for the harvest anymore but they were giving it to a pagan god of a harvest. Now, isn't it really no different today? There are those who claim to be Christians that seem to get further and further from God. As they prosper, they get further and further away. 
They start to believe it's all because of them and not God. And even worse, instead of giving back to God what is his, they use their wealth to satisfy their fleshly desires. They turn to the world for sex, for homes, for lifestyles, for power, and so forth, to feed that selfish desire. And God gets pushed further and further away over time, just like the Israelites had done over the years. And now in verse 3, we see the judgment. God says through Hosea, They shall not remain in this land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt. Now the Israelites knew exactly what that meant. This is referring back to them being slaves in Moses' time. For 400 years they were slaves, but God took them out of all that and he put them in the promised land. Before they went into the promised land, though, Moses said to them in Deuteronomy 27, You are to keep God's covenant. And if you do keep God's covenant, you will be blessed. You will have more than you will ever need. But if you break God's covenant, you will return back into exile. You're probably asking Tim, well, what was God's covenant? Well, that was that they only worshiped the one true living God, that they had no other God but the one true God. But they've broken that covenant, so they're going back into captivity just like in Egypt, but not in Egypt. Because Hosea says their exile will be in Assyria. Look at the end of verse 3. And they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. So their judgment is that they'll be just like they were in Egypt, except now they'll be in Assyria. But did you also catch that they'll eat unclean food? As soon as I read this, I thought of Daniel when he was taken to Babylon. What was the first thing that they presented him with? He was presented with food that had been used to worship idols with. It was considered unclean food. So some will say, yeah, yeah, I know it was a dietary thing, but it really wasn't. It was a way to get the Jews to compromise their faith. The Babylonians knew that if they could get them to compromise their faith, then they could get them to do anything. Clean or unclean food was important to the Jews and their faith. Now God says through Hosea, Israel, you are going to get taken to Assyria and you're going to have to eat unclean food. You'll either compromise your faith or you'll finally make a stand for me. Now today, we see it throughout the church. There are people who are compromising their faith every day. They let their heart grow hard so they don't care the things at their home. They allow the world to be the source of identity. They allow the things of the world to satisfy their own desires and they compromise their faith. It starts off just a little, just a small decision. You know, we'll miss church because the kids have some soccer tournament or baseball tournament. Well, things are crazy right now. I don't have time to read my Bible or pray. It seems so innocent. Then they'll say, but I'll do it once things settle down. But things never settle down. You know, I need to work a little extra so I'll be noticed and I'll get that next promotion. And then the company sees that and they reward you by promoting you. But then they expect you to work that way all the time. It's the little decisions of compromise that lead to a path that takes us further and further away from God until one day we're just like Israel. Our heart is hard and it's far from God. Then he goes on in verse four and he says, they shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled for their bread shall be for their hunger only. And it shall not come to the house of the Lord. God says that they are going to run back to their religious routines. They think that they'll be able to take their wine and their animals. They'll be able to make sacrifices of God and it will appease him. I mean, it always worked in the past, but God says no. 
I'm not even going to reject it because I'm not even going to give you a chance to go to Beth Haven to do that. Oftentimes when things get hard for us, first thing we do is we run back to our religious routines. I'm going to read the Bible more. I'm going to pray more. The problem is, is that it wasn't our first response. It was our last response. We think that we can throw a spiritual Hail Mary and that God will swoop in and save us. The problem with this mentality is that God looks at the heart and not the ritual. You can start reading your Bible more. You can even pray more. But if your heart isn't right and isn't in it, then God isn't any part of it as well. It's just a ritual. It's a custom. It's a way that you were brought up or you were taught. But God isn't looking for just for the motion, but he's looking for the emotions that drive the motion. And God's desire is a true, intimate worship with him, not just some lip service and our heart far from him. Now look when we at verses five through seven. What will you do on that day for the appointed festival, on that day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettle shall possess their possession things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. Now here's what I really want you to hear in verse 7. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. Now I like the way the Message Bible reads in verse 7. Time's up. Doom's at the doorstep. It's payday. See, God is saying the day of reckoning is here. The timer's gone off. Time's up. Now I'm going to act. I'm going to bring my judgment. And at this point, there is nothing that Israel can do to stop it except repent and really mean it this time. Turn from their ungodly ways back to God and repent. Sadly, when judgment comes for our sin, that's still the only way for us. And that is to repent and turn back to God and to truly mean it. Now God states the truth that we don't like to admit. Israel shall know it. And we all have to admit it. When we aren't doing the right things, we know it. We may not admit it, but we know it. We may put on a good show. We may be a great poser. But, but when we lay our head down at night, we know it. God said Israel knew it, that they couldn't play dumb. Their facade is now going to be exposed. You could say that God is telling them the party is over. Now, the next thing that God points out is that they considered Hosea a foolish prophet. Look back at verse 7 through 9. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad. Because of your great iniquity and hatred, the prophet is a watchman of Ephraim for my God. Yet a fowler snare is on all his ways, and hatred in the house of God. They have deeply corrupted themselves in the days of Gibeon. He will remember their iniquity, and he will punish their sins. So Hosea has been warning them, but they've ignored him. And the judgment of God is now going to be put on them. And this really isn't much different from today, is it? Now, if you look at the second part of verse 7, you see how the people reacted. They say that this prophet is a fool. He's crazy. This man of God is just right out nuts. Our priests aren't saying what he's saying, so he has to be wrong. Now, if you remember, 200 years ago, King Jeroboam had surrounded himself with religious leaders or priests who had no anointing. When the northern ten tribes split from the southern two tribes, all the Levites and the priests went to the southern kingdom or Judah. So the priests were just hired men that Jeroboam had put into place. 
Now, the priests for the northern kingdom aren't speaking for God. They're just preaching a health and wealth message. They're teaching that if you try hard enough, don't give up. Believe in yourself. You can accomplish anything. Unfortunately, today, you still hear this preached in some churches. There are preachers that are telling people what they want to hear. There are churches that will pump you up. When you walk out, you feel like that you can take on the world and you have it all in you. You're ready for another week, but you've been duped because you'll fail every time you try to do it in your own strength. It's only through the power of Jesus Christ, walking in his strength, that we are victorious. Paul warned young Timothy that there would come a time when men and women would not listen to sound teaching of the word, but listen to preachers who tickled their ears and they pumped up their egos. Now he goes on in verse 8, God says that the prophet is a watchman for Ephraim or Israel. God's saying that his prophets warn the people of coming judgment, telling them to repent of their ways and turn back to him. See, that's a huge responsibility of God's watchmen. They have the blood of the people on their hands. And if they don't teach and warn them in God's ways and commandment, then the blood is on their hands. But now if the people don't listen, it's not their fault and they're innocent of their blood. Now Hosea is innocent for the people of Israel because they won't listen to him. And they've dismissed him as a fool. He's a maniac. And when he delivered God's message, they wouldn't listen. And they wouldn't listen because their false priest had been telling them about wealth and prosperity and not the warnings because God was not speaking through them. Now let's look how things turn in verse 10 through 14. We start to see a conversation between God and Hosea in the rest of this chapter. In verse 10, he says, Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruits of the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Bol Pierre and consecrated themselves to the things of shame and became detestable like the things they loved. Ephraim's glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, no conception. Even if they bring up children, I will bereave them till none is left. Woe to them when I depart from them. Ephron, as I have seen, was like a young palm planted in a meadow, but Ephraim must lead his children out to slaughter. Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying wound and dry breast. So God says, at one time you brought delight to me. You were like grapes found where they weren't expected. You were like grapes found in the desert. And that's how God looked upon Israel. He was, they were a refreshing treat to him. That was his love for them. When I first found you, you were wonderful. You were incredible. That was my love for you. But then he goes on to say that they came to Bel Peor and they became detestable as the thing that they loved. If Bel Peor sounds familiar to you, it's what happened back in Numbers 22 through 25. Now I can't read all that. You can go read that in detail if you want to, but I'll give you a brief summary. Now, Balak was the king of Moab, and he had heard what the Israelites had done to the Amorites. And now they're camped in his country, and he's afraid of their size and that he's next on their list to defeat. So he calls a prophet named Balaam to come curse Israel. Now, Balaam's really a weird character because as you read through the book of Numbers, sometimes you see parts where he seems like a godly character, and other times not so much. Now, every time Balaam opens his mouth to curse God, though, only blessings come out. Three times that happens. Balak had hired him to curse Israel, but God speaks a blessing through him instead. And in my imagination, I see this almost like the movie Liar, Liar, where Jim Carrey 
is can't lie because his son asked on his birthday wish that his dad couldn't lie. And now the wish comes true. And now Jim carries a lawyer. And every time he tries to lie, the truth only comes out. Well, anyway, Balaam can't curse Israel. And that makes Balak furious. So Balaam tells Balak, if you really want to attack the Israelites, attack their hearts. And here's what you need to do. Send your Moabite women into their camp and seduce them to have sex and worship your gods. And if you can get the Israelite army to be seduced, then their hearts will be after your gods and not the God of Israel. So that's what happens at Bay Peor. It angered God so much that 24,000 men died because they had sex and they committed spiritual adultery. And so that's what Hosea is really saying here when he references this. Israel had been just like Adam and God walking through the garden before the fall. There was this delight, this refreshment, and so much more. And God was saying to the people, remember the past days that were like the delight and the refreshment in our relationship. Remember when everything seemed so hopeful, but those days are gone because of your unfaithfulness, just like Baal Peor. There are a lot of things in this world that want to seduce us from the Lord too. Don't fall for the seduction. Don't adulterate your heart. Worship the Lord your God and worship him only. Now, he goes on to say, and you became detestable like the things that they love. The result of the spiritual adultery is that the glory of Ephraim was being pulled away. It was going to fly away just like a bird flies away. In verse 11 through 14, we see a picture of barrenness. The barrenness is of the land and of the people. We see that Hosea bows to the will of God and the judgment that God has for Israel. What an awful thing for Hosea to have to say to the people that he's a part of and he's called to speak to. God speaks to him though saying that he's going to dry up their womb and their breast. God is saying that if you're going to give credit to those worthless man-made idols, then I'm going to dry up your prosperity. I'm going to dry up your fertility. Then I'll cut it all off. There'll be no more conception. There'll be no more childbirth. And once you see that your idols can't help you, you will turn back to me. Again, this is tough to read and understand, but as we've seen throughout this book, God has given them a chance time and time again. He's warned them from prophet after prophet, but they just won't listen to him. You could read this chapter and form an opinion that God is not loving, but he's mean. But that's not the case. He's tried to warn them. He sent multiple messages through prophets to them, but they just haven't listened. So don't mistake mean with tough love. The question is, at what length does God have to go through to reach people? Think about your own life. Some of you listening have a testimony like this. You strayed so far from God that you were unwilling to turn to him. And then God had to remove his protection from you so that you would quit doing everything in your own strength and you would eventually turn back to him. That's when you finally cried out to him. God knew exactly what it took, how much pressure he needed to put on each of us so that we would bend our knee and we would turn to him. Think about the prodigal son's father. Do you think he was like Hosea that maybe he prayed that God would make all his son's ways fruitless and restless? Maybe you have a prodigal child. Maybe you have a prodigal spouse or a father or a mother that that doesn't know the Lord. Could you pray such a prayer? Could you pray that God would make all their ways fruitless and restless till they repent of their sins and they turn to God? Are you being mean or are you showing tough love? Now listen to verses 15 through 17 because we're out of time. 
Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebels. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Even though they give birth, I will put the beloved children to death. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. It was at Gilgal that God had them cross the Jordan into the promised land. It was at Gilgal that Samuel anointed Saul king. Now really, that was a rejection to God's rule over them. It was at Gilgal that Saul was rejected as king because he rebelled against God's word. God is saying that the way that Israel has behaved at Gilgal in the past is the way they're behaving now. They've rejected me even though I've blessed them. So in verse 15, we see the consequences of their sin. God will drive them out of the land. Their love for God has dried up like a vine. Listen to what Jesus had to say about this in John 15, 5 through 6. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch or withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Jesus is saying that when anyone separates them from him, they are dead wood. They're dried up and they will bear no fruit. It is only through an intimate relationship with Jesus who is divine and supplies us with all that we need that we bear fruit. We will always fail when we do it in our own strength. It is only through the source of Jesus Christ. So let me close with this final thought. After this lesson today, you'd have to admit that this isn't a chapter that you would want to read if you wanted to get motivated. It weighs heavy on your heart. This lesson reveals a side of God that we don't often hear about. And if we're really honest, it's a side of God we don't really want to know about. It reveals God's hatred for sin, his righteous judgment against that sin. There are many people that started out well with God, just like the Israelites. They crossed the river of Jordan into the promised land, but somewhere along that path, they started to embrace an idol of this world. They've been seduced by other things, and they've placed that thing on a pedestal above God. Now, these people still go to church on Sunday. They still talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. Their hearts have become hard like soil. And today, God wants to break up that soil of their heart so that he can get rid of the weeds and he can put seeds of righteousness back in that heart. He can make that soil soft and tender, that heart soft and tender. Now, you might be thinking, that's not me. He's not speaking to me. This lesson doesn't apply to me. But let me ask you this question. Where is your heart? What is the love of your life? What consumes the most of your time and thoughts? What dictates most of your finances? What do you give the most of your time to? Where do you put your trust? All of these are great indicators of idols that we've allowed into our lives. So I have to ask, are you guilty like Israel of worshiping other gods? Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you today, Lord, and this is a sobering lesson. It weighs heavy on my heart. Lord, I feel that you're out there knocking on folks. Lord, you've you spoke to me. You've made me analyze my heart. And Lord, I know there's areas that I can prove. And I want to have that intimate relationship with you, just like you want to have with every one of us, each and every one that's listening to this lesson today. Lord, it's sad to hear that there comes a time when the party's over. 
It's payday. The judgment is now. We put it off. We put it off just like a child that puts off listening to their parents. But Lord, you're teaching us that delayed obedience is disobedience. Lord, I ask that if there's one listening today, Lord, that you're knocking on the heart, that you're telling them, hey, you've got some gods in your life that are bigger than me. Lord, that they would wake up. Lord, that they would turn to you and they would ask for forgiveness. Because that's what your word teaches us. Lord, it teaches us that you are the vine, you are the source, and without you, we are nothing. Lord, what may look good right now, we may may be going through a time of prosperity, but you are the source, and without you, we will fail. So right now, Lord, I pray for those that have those gods in their life, that they would turn to you. Lord, maybe there's one today that doesn't know you at all. Lord, I pray for them, that maybe they're that prodigal son that has gone to the far land that was calling to them. Lord, have them come to the senses just like he did. Let him return back to you. Let them turn to you and ask for forgiveness. Lord, let them ask for you to be Lord of their life. Lord, we're going to give you all the honor and glory and praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.